0: realfaith.org.au He locked me inside our apartment and he said to me John, you're a big boy now you're ten years old I want you to be really brave if it gets dark tonight and I'm not home take yourself to bed and off he went and I was locked inside and I was brave for about two minutes and then I cried I missed my mum and um, off he went and it got dark that evening and he didn't come back Actually, my father never came back, Eric, at all.
1: Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scatterbo. John Lawson is the author of the book, If a
2: Wicked Man, which tells the story of his life of crime, but also about how God got a hold of his heart and turned his life around. Welcome to the program, John Lawson.
0: Oh, Eric, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you and, and be here in Australia.
2: Glad to have you with us. And yes, where are you from originally?
0: Oh, I was born in Scotland, and I, I don't have um, much of a Scottish accent left anymore. Mm. But uh, yeah, I was born in Scotland and uh, when I was three years old. My family, my mom and my dad and me, we emigrated to South Africa. We lived in an area of Scotland called Glasgow, and there was a lot of poverty in the particular area we lived. And my dad was just wanting a better life, and we set sail, and this new life began in Durban in South Africa, uh, which was vastly different to, uh, the last, I think the last photograph taken of me was standing on a frozen canal. And um, the next picture, I'm in South Africa in the warm sunshine <laughs> with monkeys in the tree.
2: Quite a contrast weather wise.
0: Yeah, huge. Uh, really warm, beautiful climate. Um, the outdoor lifestyle that uh, is afforded to South Africans. Um, this was in the days of apartheid, but as a child, you don't see that. You don't see color. You don't see apartheid. But um, I think just really because of the color of our skin, because we were white, you know, immediately, you know, one step up the social ladder where mm. we were very poor working class and considered low lifes, I guess, from the area we lived, we were suddenly now seen as fairly affluent. And my father joined the police force. He always liked guns and my mum got a job. And yeah, my dad was my my hero growing up. I used to go to the shooting range with him and help him make bullets. And he was always in the newspapers making high-profile arrests. And gosh, I used to think he was like uh, Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry.
2: So he he kind of became your hero, you said?
0: Yeah, really. I mean, I guess... I mean, not every boy, their dads are their heroes because there's a lot of horrible stories out there. But certainly, um, in most cases, you know, you grow up, you idolize your father. He's your hero, and he really was my hero. And we, it seemed like we were in a perfectly loving family unit. But when I was 10 years old, my life took a, a different turn. Changed quite dramatically, really.
2: Yes, please share with us about that.
0: Yeah, my my mom received a phone call from the UK. My grandparents had moved from Glasgow down to a place called Merseyside, which is where Liverpool is, and a lot of people know Liverpool because of the, the um, soccer team. Uh, the Beatles, too. <laughs> and the Beatles, yeah, of yep. course, the Beatles. And um, they had moved down there, my grandparents, again, for a better life. They heard you can get a whole house to yourself rather than a little flat with all the family crammed in there. Um, but my mom received a phone call to give us some bad news that her father was terminal with cancer. Mm -hmm. and they said to my mum, you should come home quickly if you want to see your father alive again. He only has four or five weeks to live. Mm. So arrangements were hurriedly made. My mum came back to the UK with my little brother. It was free in those days for a child to travel on an aeroplane under a certain age. And I stayed in South Africa with my dad. And the plan was, um, Eric, that we would be reunited either after the funeral, my mum would come back, or they considered the possibility of selling up our apartment And moving back to the UK permanently. So that was the decision that was being looked at. But Mm -hmm. none of us knew my father was having an affair with another woman. And uh, he used this opportunity really to get rid of us. Uh, He did, I guess, something quite unthinkable for most fathers. He picked me up from school on the last day of term, on the long holidays. And we broke up early. We broke up on a Thursday instead of Friday. And I was so excited. I got a ride home in the police car. Mm -hmm. And he locked me inside our apartment. And he said to me, John... You're a big boy now. You're 10 years old. I want you to be really brave. If it gets dark tonight and I'm not home, take yourself to bed. And off he went, and I was locked inside, and I was brave for about two minutes. And then I cried. Though I missed my mom. Wow. And um, off he went, and it got dark that evening, and he didn't come back. I climbed into my parents' bed. I woke in, in the morning, and I waited all day for him to come back. And by now I was really hungry. There was no, there was no food that I could access. And I was just getting hungry, and I'm waiting for my dad, and he didn't come back. And Actually, my father never came back, Eric, at all. Wow. Um, But fortunately, I was only locked inside there for four days. Four days? Yeah, just for four days. With no food? No, by the fourth day, um, well, some family friends broke open the door, and they found me lying on, on the rug in the living room, very weak, and drifting in and out of consciousness. I guess by the fourth day, with no food and not much to drink um, that will do something to a child. And they helped me to get back to the UK.
2: So if if I'm understanding this correctly, his affair and time with this other lady was more important to him? Is that what happened?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's. Um, I remember the, some big arguments because he did appear again, and he there was heated arguments outside the house where I was staying with these family friends, um, more like an auntie and uncle to me really and I remember just hearing conversations like how could you do this you know um, "No, I don't care um, that's terrible and all of these kind of things going, going, you know on a one way conversation that I was hearing on the phone call and then he appeared and they really had a go at him and he gave some excuse of, I don't know what his excuse was he, he, he thought I'd be okay he was going away with this woman for a long weekend they got delayed and got delayed further and he thought I'd be okay. And eventually he was going to come back. I I don't know what excuses he made, but Hmm. um, all I know is he didn't come back.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. uh, Well, for whatever reason, there's no excuse that's good enough. Meanwhile, you're starving and locked all by yourself.
0: Yeah. It was, um, you know, sometimes the Lord can protect you from those things, you know, Mm. like, you know, when people have a traumatic car crash and they wake up in hospital and they have no recollection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, there's a reason for that. And, um, I've got to be honest with you, I, I have no memory at all of being locked in that flat, apart from the door frame being broken open. I have a very vivid memory of that door being broken open. It wasn't until many years later, which we'll, we'll come to, mm. when I met that couple again, and they said to me, that was terrible what your father did. And I said, well, you know, just quite flippantly, well, well, you know, that happens. You know, um, people get divorced, they, they meet other people. And they're like, no, no, <laughs> no what your father no. did. And I said, what did he do? You know, he locked you in the flat for four days, and we picked you up off the floor. We, we, we had to uh, – and I said, what? I said, I don't remember that at all. Wow. I don't remember it.
2: As if in your mind you kind of minimized it in order to cope with it.
0: Yeah, I blanked it out. But, of course, that will also then have an impact on your life, even if you can't see it. Yeah. Subconsciously, it's yep. having the impact.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So then what happened?
0: Well, back in the UK, um, life was very different from um, South Africa. My grandfather died quite quickly after I got back, and then my grandmother, she just gave up. She gave up. Hmm. They said that my grandmother died of a broken heart. Wow. I didn't think that was a medical condition, but sometimes people can just give up the will to live. Um, She just died. And so my mom lost both of her parents, and then this had happened with her and divorce and all of our possessions and all of our life were in South Africa.
2: And and then finding Um, out that her son was being neglected in a horrific way.
0: Yeah. I mean, devastating. Just all yeah. all of this poured out onto my mum. Yeah. Uh, and then we had to leave the family home because it was rented and the grandparents had died. We didn't have anywhere to live. So now my mum's in a position where we're penniless, homeless. And so we moved back to Scotland where we had my dad's mum, my grandmother, who was shocked at what her son had done. And mm. she was just such a loving, loving grandmother. I mean, she just could not believe what had happened. Um, so we got stayed on their, her sofa until so we found a flat, and we moved then to the roughest housing estate in the whole of Europe. They said at the time it was the worst place to live, the most violent place you could live in Europe, and I was shocked at seeing other children my age sniffing bags of glue to get high, carrying blades and being prepared to use them. Um, it was a very violent place. I would see lots of women get beat by drunken husbands. My mum would offer refuge to these women, and the police would turn up and do nothing. They called it a domestic between a husband and a wife. Nothing to do with us. I mean, thankfully things have changed today, but I just saw all this injustice and deep down I had this, this anger and resentment that was growing inside of me. And I began to really hate the police. Mm. Obviously my father was a policeman. Yeah. Yeah. And also, and then I'm in this school where the kids are very violent. They're using language that I've not been used to and uh, cheeky teachers, just disrespectful. I was pinned against the wall and. Told I was going to get my head kicked in after school, and I uh, had this fight with a boy. And somehow I managed to win the fight because I have a very hard head. And um, <laughs> he landed so many punches on me. And when I landed a lucky punch, he was exhausted. He fell over, and I won the fight. And um, the next day in school, I was the hero. Everyone wanted to be my friend. And I quickly mm. put two and two together, Eric, there that you earn respect in that community with your fists or how hard you mm. are. And then we had some more disasters there. You know, the place got flooded and it froze over in the winter and we lost everything again. So eventually we moved back down where we. my mom had some um, brothers and sisters back in Merseyside again near Liverpool. And the whole thing started again. I was this, by now I was an angry kid. I'd got into martial arts and fighting. And I think my mom thought I was an angel, but, at, you know, at the age of 14 I'm, I'm ashamed to tell your listeners that I was a bit of an idiot and I would break into factories with my friends. We would steal things and um, I would get into lots of fights at school. And the only thing that kept me in school really is because I was a very good rugby player and the sports teachers would come to my defense. But Hmm. by the time I left school at 18, I had no qualifications. I just wanted money. I just thought money was the answer to all of life's problems. Mm -hmm. And my dad's brothers, my uncle Dave and George, they were also shocked at what their brother had done and they really took me in under their wing. But they were millionaires now. They were earning millions of pounds. Um, they were involved in the sex industry in London. They had got really heavily involved with the Maltese Mafia. They were predominantly running uh, most of the sex clubs and what they call hostess bars and peep shows and adults.
2: So this is really the underworld, so to speak.
0: Yeah, it was very much the underworld. Mm-hmm. And they were making lots of money driving around in Rolls Royces and things and They offered me a job and, well, that was it. I was off. I couldn't wait to get away. And I began to work uh, managing some of these places for my uncles, earning lots of money, five or six times more than my friends were earning at home. And um, this resulted in my first trip to prison. Our guest today is John Lawson. He's the author of the book, If a Wicked Man.
2: And unfortunately, we've been hearing how he's gotten deeper and deeper into a life of crime. And it gets worse before it finally gets better and God gets a hold of his heart. We'll find out how
1: when we return right here on Real Faith. Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith. Welcome back. I'm Eric Skadabo,
2: and our guest today is John Lawson. He's the author of the book, If a Wicked Man. Now, before the break, we heard how his life was sinking deeper and deeper into crime. And now we're going to hear how it even gets worse before it finally gets better.
0: To cut my long story short, I have the spell in prison. I come out from there, and um, I had to let the heat die down from the family name. Um, So I, I became a bouncer. I worked in nightclubs all over the northwest of England. I worked with a team of ex special forces soldiers, and our company would use us to go from nightclub to nightclub where there was lots of trouble, where the local bouncers couldn't handle the situation anymore, and it would get very violent. And I thrived on the violence and the violent aspect. It was something deep within my dark soul, and my dark heart that that craved this violent life. I also joined a motorcycle gang, like you know, like the Hell's Angels. Mm-hmm. They were called the Nomads, and. There I was now riding around in a, in a big chopper. I got married at 21, divorced by 22, a single father by the age of 23. I got custody of my son and determined not to be a father that would abandon my, my son. Uh-huh. Um, but again, I needed money. And now, again, to my shame, I, I went back to London and I ran the largest brothel in London. And I'm not saying that in a boastful way. I'm saying it in a very shameful, disgusting way, really. And uh, that was the kind of man I was, married again. Um, had two more sons, and, uh, you know, gosh, what was my wife thinking? What must she have been thinking when her husband was traveling now, I was living in Edinburgh in Scotland now, traveling down to London Monday to Friday, running a brothel?
2: Did she know about this?
0: Well, she knew about it, but what could she do? I was, mm. like, I was one of those men that don't ask questions. As long as I put money on the table, what mm. does it matter?
2: But then what happened?
0: Oh, I had a big row with my uncles, and that relationship ended. I go back to Scotland, and and I now train as a bodyguard. As a bodyguard, I work with some very rich and famous people. I work with the Rolling Stones for a short time, and I thought, well, this is it. I've made it in life, but it was the most boring job that I had. My job was to sit on a chair in a corridor of a hotel to make sure Keith Richards didn't get disturbed for 12 hours on a night shift.
2: It sounds glamorous, but uh, you're saying it wasn't really that glamorous in reality. It
0: wasn't glamorous, no. And, and I was craving the excitement and the money. And in those circles, Eric, you know, you're going to meet lots of people with lots of money, uh, different influences. Uh, I met lots of uh, so-called businessmen who were nothing more than white-collar gangsters, uh, drug dealers. And, you know, when those people have a problem with money, because you're going to find somebody owes somebody some money. And when those people have a problem with money, they will come to scum like me and my men and we would be the ones to come and find you if you were stupid enough to have stolen money from them. And now my life really became embroiled in serious kidnap and extortion on an international level as an enforcer for gangsters. I I never considered myself as an enforcer for gangsters until I saw the headlines in the newspaper that said, John Lawson, enforcer for gangsters. Again, Eric, I just really want to emphasize, you know, it makes me feel sick, really, to talk about these things. I Mm. feel like I've got so much blood on my hands and and I've got to go back there in my mind every time I talk about them. Hmm. Um, I don't really want to go into detail because it's sickening, but I have so much blood on these filthy hands that I held men hostage, kidnapping them, making them pay money and earning lots of commission. And Well, they deserved it because they were scumbags, and I was a good guy. I loved my kids, read them a bedtime story, give them a kiss on the cheek, and just go and put a ballyclava on and a shotgun and hold men hostage and beat them in ridiculous ways. Wow, um, And that was my life, but thankfully, thank goodness, the police finally caught me, and they threw me into prison again.
2: Yeah, um, so would you say that was your lowest point?
0: Um, lowest and highest, all at the same time.
2: Oh, please explain.
0: My wife, she wrote to say, that's it, we're getting divorced. I didn't, she was unaware of the level of crime I was involved in. I would just say, don't ask questions, there's some money, go buy yourself a nice car. There's some money, go book a nice holiday. Hmm. And... um In prison, we got divorced. The government seized all of my assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act. So, yeah, all I could think about was crime. But in prison, I made friends with a Nigerian prisoner. His name was Tony, and uh, he was different from the other prisoners. He stood out. He was always smiling and happy, a little bit too happy for my liking. (laughs) And, well, there was a reason for it. As much as he was a nice guy, there was one thing I didn't like about him. He was a Christian. Mm. And he was always going on about Jesus and God. And I gave him such a hard time about, oh, yeah, you're a Christian. What are you doing in prison then, hey? Some kind of Christian you are, mate. Hmm. And, um, you know, he said, well, John, you know, I, I love Jesus. And I made some terrible mistakes. I got involved with some fraud and I fell away from the Lord. But I'm telling you now that Jesus is my Savior and my life has changed. I said, you've been in prison too long. What do you want to believe that rubbish for? And um Every Thursday in that prison, they had a Bible study, and every Thursday, Tony, the Nigerian, would see me in the yard, and he would always say to me, "Hello, my friend. How are you today?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very Nigerian greeting. Yeah. And um I'd say, well, what, "What do you mean? How am I? I'm in prison. What a stupid question!" And he'd um, always tap his watch and say, "Do you know what day it is today?" And I'd say, "Well, yes, it's Thursday. That's your second stupid question." <laughs> And he'd say, "No, it's not Thursday Day today. It's Christian fellowship Day- today." And for four months, he badgered me to go, um, but finally, I relented because he shared something with me very important. I changed my mind. Yeah, what was that? What he shared with me was that this pastor who came into the prison, he brought with him nice cake and coffee and biscuits.
2: Oh, that did the trick.
0: That did the trick. And I said, why didn't you tell me that before? (laughs) So I changed my mind. I went along to this Bible study. and and, Well, I did know one thing about Christians, you know, that they, when they pray, they close their eyes. And they have this kind of table over on the side with cake and coffee and biscuits. And I thought, well, good. When these Christians get in their holy huddles and close their eyes, I'm just going to fill my pockets. But I was so disappointed. The pastor moved us all over to the other side of the room. There were 12 other prisoners there that night, murderers and drug dealers and bank robbers and, of course, a violent animal like me. But these guys looked so relaxed. They had joy in their hearts, and they handed out some song sheets, and he got a guitar out of a case, and I thought, oh, no, I can see it now. Hallelujahs and kumbayas. (laughs) You know, what's next? But they began to sing in a way that I never imagined church folk singing before. I always imagine it high-pitched old ladies' voices, you know, hmm. um, singing very, very old, old hymns. But they sang um, a song. It was called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord.
2: Oh, yeah. And yeah. They,
0: they, they really rocked it. It was like rock gospel. I mean, passion and excitement. And I was, as I was reading the words on the song sheet, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, I knew in that moment, Eric, that I was just going to cry. I could feel it in my belly and my chest. And
2: wow. That touched your heart.
0: touched my heart so much. The tears started rolling, and I didn't want them to see me crying. I hid my face behind the song sheet, and uh, I don't remember much more about that evening, but I cried like a baby. The next morning, Friday morning, the guards unlocked my door, and guess who's standing there? Hello, my friend. How are you today? <laughs> I said, Tony, what do you want, man? Come on, get out of my way. And he had a Bible behind his back. He presented me with this Bible, and I said, Tony... I don't want that rubbish. Thank you. And for the first time, Eric, he, he stood right in front of me and he gave me direct eye contact. He looked so serious. And he looked at me and he pointed his finger, he stabbed his finger into the Bible and he said, let me tell you, this rubbish is the very same thing that changed this rubbish talking to you. Hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I took the Bible and I threw it onto my bed. And that evening, I opened it up. I'd never opened a Bible before. And um, it opened up kind of more or less like in the middle somewhere and opened in the book of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 27 to 32. And and that's where I take the title from my book. My book is called If a Wicked Man. And mm-hmm. this is what it says. I'd like to read it to you mm-hmm. if that's okay. Yep. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, then he can save his life. He won't have to die. Because he considers all of the offenses he's committed, he turns away from them, he will surely live, declares the Sovereign Lord. And then comes the complaint, because Christians were so good at complaining, (laughs) Um, the house of Israel. They say, oh, the ways of the Lord are not just, and and God says, no. (laughs) Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. So, repent, rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign lord, so repent and live. Well I I don't know what those words might mean to some of your listeners, but I tell you in that prison cell, I just knew I knew it. I knew that I knew that I knew, as we say, that I was a wicked man. Mm. And I wanted this new heart and new spirit. And I began my life began to unravel before me as I looked at my face in the mirror. I felt disgusted and ashamed with with myself really. I felt so ashamed. I wanted a new heart and new spirit, but I didn't know how to get it. The following Thursday, I went back to see that pastor, and I asked him, I, I pleaded with him, Pastor, how is this possible? How is it that this God can give someone like me a new heart and a new spirit? And he shared the gospel with me in a very simple way, Eric. Well, it, it really began to make sense, Eric, and it was about a week later. I was in my cell, and I cried out to God for the first time. I, I prayed to him, and, and I, I was so willing to come to him. It, I wanted it so bad. Uh, I said, God, you know, I, I don't know. What do I say to you? You're, you're, you're almighty God. Who am I? But nothing. But I'm so sorry. I'm ashamed. I'm I'm so sorry for all the people I've hurt and the way I've talked to people. I just felt this wave of, of forgiveness coming into that cell, Eric. And, mm-hmm. and I said to Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to make you my Lord my Savior. And, and in that prison, Jesus Christ set me free, Eric, even behind bars. Wow. And I want your listeners to to get a grasp of that if they can. I was set free, even though I still had two and a half years to go in that prison. I was a free man. And Jesus has been rebuilding my life ever since.
2: And he was able to take your hard, hard heart and soften it and break through, especially from hearing the worship music and then, of course, by being set free. Wow, it's just amazing. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. How can we wrap up our conversation today, John?
0: Well... Please, if anybody feels that they would like to get in touch, they can come through my website, which is ifawickedman.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my contact details are in there, so we don't need to give out any emails or anything like that. Just ifawickedman.com. Mm-hmm. I also work with um, a ministry called the Great Commission com. Um, we're focused on two areas of ministry, reaching the lost with the gospel and um, training and equipping Christians to do the same. I have been in full-time faith-based ministry for 11 years. No income very little support, but God, uh, such a provider, he's taken me to over 26 countries now. I speak in the toughest prisons on the planet. I share in church outreach events. I will come alongside your churches and help you in that area. But I have a deep passion to train and equip your Christians, your congregation, to be more active in the sharing of their faith. And, you know, my life is so different today. I'm married to Carolyn. She's a wonderful Christian girl. We live in the east coast of Sussex in, in the U.K., And she's such a blessing to me that I've been able to leave home for these three weeks of mission to Australia. I can't wait to get home and see her, you know, Eric.
2: Well, John Lawson, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today.
0: You're very welcome. It's been great to talk to you.
2: Our guest today has been John Lawson. He's the author of the book, If a Wicked Man, and his website is ifawickedman.com. Once again, that's ifawickedman.com.